there are placebo responses in most clinical trials, meaning that patients who receive fake medication get better throughout the time of the study. And now there's a lot of studies looking at the neurobiology underlying placebo effects. So when there are placebo effects, we can also see that there are objective changes in the body. So for example, when somebody is experiencing pain relief in relation to a placebo treatment, that is associated with a release of certain neurotransmitters that can inhibit pain. So we know so much more about the mechanisms. We can look into the human body and see that it's not only a way for patients to make the doctor happy. Welcome to Skas Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and today I talk to Karin Jensen, Pro Futura Scientia Fellow here at SCAS and a Fellow in Residence in the academic year of 2019-2020. Karin Jensen is an Associate Professor of Clinical Neuroscience at Karolinska Institutet, and her research interest focuses on placebo and the perception of pain. And this is the first episode in our new theme on the brain, SCAS hosts a natural science program, and one of the subjects within that program is human brains and societies. For me, this is not the first time I meet Karin Jensen. In 2013, I traveled to Boston to visit different research environments and to meet many different scientists, and one of them was you, Karin. You were a postdoc at that time at Harvard Medical School, and you had just initiated one of the studies we will hear more about today. So it's very nice to meet you again. Welcome to Scus Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Thank you for remembering the time in Boston. My name is Karin and I am a research group leader at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. And in my lab, we are around eight people and we focus on understanding what happens in the brain when we feel pain and when we experience placebo effects. And we use mostly experimental methods such as pain testing, but we also use brain scanners to measure what happens in the brain when people experience pain and placebo treatments. I remember looking at one of the brain scanners when I visited you. Quite a big machines, expensive uh, equipment. But let's explain some of the terminology and some of the words we're going to use today. I think that is always useful so everybody understands what we're talking about. So what is placebo and the placebo effect? Well, a placebo is an inert treatment, which means the treatment does not have an active ingredient. And a placebo is designed to look just like an active treatment and taste like it and uh, feel just like it so that we can use it as a control in treatment studies where people cannot tell the difference between the placebo and the real treatment. Because if we do, if we use the placebo, we can tell what part of the treatment response is due to the real ingredient of the real drug and how much is due to other things, such as expectations and other contextual factors. 
And the placebo effect then is the um, improvement that we see in people who take a placebo treatment that cannot be explained by other things such as um, natural remission or regression towards the mean, which is like a statistical artifact that can occur when we measure people several times. So it's important to understand that the placebo effect is not just the response in itself to a placebo treatment. It's actually the, the specific part of that response that cannot be explained by other random factors, if you will. How come you got interested in this field? Ooh, well, when I was a student a long time ago, the techniques that we use to study the brain without actually damaging anyone or causing any wounds or so, it's called non-invasive. It means we don't cause any damage to anyone. Um, those techniques became available around the time when I was doing my, my master's in clinical psychology. So I became very curious and I started doing some research as just as a research assistant in some of these studies. So I guess I first fell in love with the methodology of being able to study the brain in a safe way. And then once I got involved in, in that field of neuroscience, I soon got interested in the complex things that we experience as human beings, such as pain and other like subjective feelings. So I guess the combination of the, the methodology being available that intrigued me and also the complexity of pain and placebo effects, which drew me to the subject itself. It's very fascinating to see these pictures, these brain scans, what happens when you're doing something or being exposed to something. Yeah, and today most people take for granted that we have machines where we can look at these blobs, these colorful blobs that tell us where in the brain we can see increased activations. But as a matter of fact, these techniques have not been available for so long. It's only in the beginning of the year 2000, a little bit earlier, late 1990s or so, that these machines became available. So I guess I am considered the first generation of neuroscientists that have full availability of these methods. Yeah, that's interesting because you think of them having been around all the time. but Yeah, but it, it's not so. And before they were available, there were much more uh, primitive ways of understanding the brain. For example, looking at lesion studies to see if somebody has a lesion somewhere in their brain, what kind of behavioral function or what kind of cognitive function is altered or missing in that person and then try to relate that brain region to a specific function. So that's the kind of study that people would do before. But now we have so many more techniques available to choose from. That's very good to be reminded of that a lot of studies nowadays are possible due to the development in technology. Yeah, and in physics. It's always an intersection between the different disciplines, but a combination of medicine and physics has made these techniques available. To me, I mean, it, it means everything, being able to study the brain without having to open up the head of someone, basically. Yeah, you wouldn't want to do that. And maybe you wouldn't quite willingly participate in a research study then. And as I mentioned in the introduction, we have met once before when you were a postdoc at Harvard Medical School. And at that point, you had just started a project using one of these uh, brain imaging techniques. And the thing you wanted to do 
was to look at what happens in the brains of doctors who treat patients when they treat the patients. So rather than just looking at the experience of the patient, also see what happens in the doctor's brain. And you had just initiated that. And I remember we looked at the equipment and you told me how it's done and it was very, not complicated, but it was a lot of components to it. So can you tell us a little bit about this project and also have you gotten any results? Now it feels like ages ago, but I have continued on this track since then. The background for doing that study was that um, since the brain was started to be investigated during placebo analgesia, people started to understand more about the neural mechanisms underlying the, the placebo effect. And once we knew that there was a objective component of experiencing placebo effects, which means that we could measure the neural activity during placebo effects. People also wanted to know why there were larger placebo effects in some cases, and in some cases, no placebo effects. So that variability has always intrigued people. And when researchers have looked for the reasons that the placebo effect varies, they've always looked on the patient side to understand what are the psychological properties of the patient, what are the, the traits, how optimistic are they, and so on. But it didn't lead to so many conclusions. It turned out patients could be placebo responders in one study, but not in the other. It was very variable and not possible to predict. So I thought maybe we have to look more on the other side of that clinical dyad because uh, a clinical interaction is, is always patient and a healthcare provider. So what we did in the study was to turn the tables on the doctor-patient relationship and start looking into the brains of doctors instead of patients and try to get closer to some understanding of the placebo effect that way. So that was the background of the study. And what we did was that we recruited medical doctors that were active in the Boston area. And we asked them to have a clinical interaction with a patient that would be very naturalistic. I mean, it would look like the average medical intake in the United States, which is around 20 minutes of asking questions and uh, making physical exams or medical exams. And after that little interaction, the doctor and the patient were brought down into the brain scanner where they were asked to perform an interaction together, a treatment interaction together. And remember now that the doctor is in the brain scanner, not the patient, which was actually the first time that I know of that you put the, the doctor in the brain scanner and you put the patient next to the doctor, just next to the bedside uh, of the scanner. And then we, sometimes we gave the doctor some pain just so that we could measure the brain activity during pain in doctors. Because we wanted to compare that to the brain activity among doctors when they saw their patient having pain. So sometimes we would give the patient some pain. And we were using one of uh, our standard equipment of inducing pain. It's like a little heat device that we put on the skin. And in addition to this, we also gave the doctors a chance to treat the patients from time to time. So they would have a box in their hand where they could press a button that would reduce the pain in the patient. 
And sometimes they were asked not to treat the patient, but just press a dummy button that would not give any pain relief at all to the patient. And then we wanted to see what happened in the doctor's brain when they were either in pain themselves or watching the patient in pain or actually treating uh, the patient. And you actually don't know what happened, do you? Because you, you saw the study, but you haven't seen the results. No, I don't know what happened. So I'm curious <laughs> to hear more about it. Where do I begin? Well, first of all, when doctors see their patient in pain, they activate their own pain regions, at least some of them. And this was known before from one study where romantic couples were put in the same situation where one person in the couple was in the brain scanner and the other one was sitting outside. And sometimes one would get pain and sometimes the other would get pain. And then they saw that um, the person in the scanner would mirror the brain activity of their partner receiving pain. And it was linked to empathy for pain. But that was romantic couples and they have a natural connection to one another. And before, people didn't know what would happen in a professional situation such as a doctor-patient relationship. But we found that even though the doctor had only seen the patient for around 20 minutes and had a strictly professional interaction, the doctor would activate their own empathy for pain brain regions when the patient was in pain. So that was result number one. Result number two related to doctors being able to treat the patient. And while the doctors treated the patient, they felt a great degree of satisfaction because we also asked them how satisfied they were after each of these interactions. So when the doctors could not treat the patient, they were very dissatisfied and felt very, very bad for the patient. When they treated, on the other hand, they rated great satisfaction and they also had increased brain activity in different brain regions. First of all, they activated their so-called reward circuitry. It's a sloppy term, but it means they had activity in brain regions that we know are implicated in feelings of pleasure and reward. They also activated brain regions relating to social cognition. So when they were actively treating their patient, they tried to read the facial expressions and tried to interact with the patient in a more intense way compared to situations when, when the patient was just pain-free. And also, they activated brain regions related to expectation of relief. And I think that's at least my favorite result, because when we put people in the brain scanner and they expect to get pain relief, they often activate a region of, in the prefrontal cortex called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. It's just behind uh, the forehead, uh, on the side of the head. And that region is activated when you, as a first person, expect pain relief. But we saw when the doctors were expecting pain relief in their patient, they also activated that region. So not only did they mirror the pain in their patient, but they also seemed to mirror the expectation of relief in their patient. And I think that was the most novel result to me, at least, that you not only do we mirror the suffering of others, but we can also mirror the expectations of others. But in fact, the media, they love the result about mirroring the pain of patients. So even doctors activate empathy for pain regions when patients feel pain. So there were a lot of stories um, in the media around that time about that particular result. But what does that say about placebo and the placebo effect? Well... 
we understood from the study that not only the patient will activate this part of the prefrontal cortex when they expect pain relief, but also the doctor. The question is, are doctors who are good at inducing placebo effects activating more in these regions? So could there be some kind of spread there that depending on the doctor's activation in these regions, we can see a different result in the patients? And in order to do that, we needed to have two scanners because you want to see what happens at the same time in doctor and patient. Because there were some preliminary results from other studies, not brain studies, but um, just looking at physiological parameters when they saw that when the physiological responses in a doctor and a patient, when they swing jointly, it's called concordance, there seems to be a higher appreciation of that clinical encounter. So it means there's a more positive clinical encounter. And we thought maybe that goes also for the brain activity, that if the doctor and the patient mirror each other around the same time during the interaction, maybe that's a a good factor for inducing analgesia in the patient. So we we realized we needed to go there and have two brain scatters and and, uh, look at doctor and patient at the same time to answer that next question. Have you done that? Yes. (laughs) Well, these things take time. And I moved back from the United States while we were planning the second study. And another postdoc took over my role and led the next part of the study. He's a Norwegian guy called Dan Michael. And he led the the second part of the study, which uh, was published last year, actually, in Science Advances. They did a great job trying to coordinate two brain scanners and also physiological equipment and a doctor and a patient at the same time. And in brief, I I would say that they confirmed what we hypothesized after doing the first study. They found that when doctors and patients activate certain brain regions in concordance, which means they increase at the same time and they decrease at the same time, there is a a greater likelihood that the patient will decrease in pain. And this time, these patients were not given pain by us. This time, these were real patients with fibromyalgia who experienced pain naturally coming from inside their bodies and not being experimentally induced. Not only could they see that the, the joint brain activations mattered for the pain ratings. They could also see that the way that the doctor and patient mirrored each other's facial expressions made a difference here. So it's like a chain of events that correlate together with the facial expressions, neural activations, and also ultimately the perception of pain in the patient. Does it matter in this context if it's the first meeting between doctor and patient or if you have met several times before so you already have an established uh, relationship? That I don't know. I don't know whether you would be more likely to mirror your patient on a neural level and on a facial expression level if you know the patient from before. Maybe. Maybe that's our next study. <laughs> but it's technically very complicated and takes a lot of time and resources. And that's why I think we've had very few of these studies before. It takes years to 
to get data like this. So increasing also the number of study visits would be just the next level, I think. A lot has happened both in your science, but also in your development as a scientist. When I saw you, you were a postdoc and now you're an established uh, research group leader. How has that process been? What have been the milestones on the way? How have you established yourself in this position, so to say? Well, I usually think of it as a snowball effect where one thing leads to the other. It's It hasn't been like a eureka moment where it's like, wow, all these money were just, just rained down on me. After being a postdoc, I, I became an assistant professor and became faculty at Harvard Medical School. And I I knew then that I wanted to continue as a senior researcher and create my own lab and have my own research group. So I kind of practiced doing that there. And then I think that my old university in Sweden, Karolinska Institute, where I had defended my thesis a couple of years earlier, they had some faculty-funded positions that they offered. So in competition, you could apply for like a tenure-track type of position, which I hadn't, I had not seen that in Sweden so much before. It's more common in the United States that after a postdoc, you compete for a tenure track position. And so they started that in Sweden and I applied and I got a tenure track position at my, my old institute, which was the starting point for me to become my own group, so to speak. And then one year after the other, I received additional funding and People joined my lab, and then I also received a, a large donation from a private person in Sweden who has donated a large sum of money to establish pain research at Karolinska Institutet. And I was one out of three people who was lucky enough to, to receive that money. Then, once my lab was up and running and my research line started to look decent, I was able to become a Pro Futura fellow here at SCAS, which means a long-term type of funding and long-term stability for me as a researcher, especially for me as I am working in a cross-disciplinary type of subject. In medicine, there's no such thing as a pain field or a placebo field. It's something that falls between the cracks between several disciplines. And also between disciplines in general, not only within medicine, but also between medicine and social sciences and uh, even humanities. So for me, the Profitura Fellowship became extremely important so that I knew that I could build a long-term platform based on interdisciplinary research that can last for a very long time. And we can do long-term projects, have long-term goals that go beyond the, the two or three year type of funding that you usually get for a project. So that's where, that's where I am now, I would say, that there's long-term funding and there is a platform, at least an emerging platform, for placebo and pain studies within my lab. Yeah, that is very important. This type of long-term uh, financing, so you can also plan uh, your big projects and... Um... Yeah, and that was now. I feel now looking back that it's not only the money, of course. <laughs> I all, all I mentioned the funding, but it's becoming more and more important. But for me, also the support from senior colleagues, mentors along the way, has been, I mean, instrumental. Otherwise, I would not have applied for these 
different fellowships or or grants. So the 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 mentorship from important people in my field that guided me helped me get the resources to get the work done. So I mean if if I would say one thing it would be people helping me get the resources helping me uh, realize all the studies that we do. And I guess nowadays you also have need to find the right people to come and work with you, right? Yeah. It's interesting how they come to me also. I mean, one thing is to, to search for um, people that can do the work, but also people who have ideas in line with the work that we do in my lab they sooner or later they show up and they apply for their own money and they they join the lab so i think that's one of the great advantages of um, becoming more established that people know who you are and they they can see a track record that um, it's worth the while applying for money trying to get a position in the lab so i'm, I'm very grateful for all the people who are drawn to uh, my lab due to the research that we do Yeah, that's of course the best um, grade you can get if people really want to come to you and even look for their own money to to come and work with you. Yeah, and the worst thing is they will graduate after four years and I <laughs> I get separation anxiety. So <laughs> I have a couple of people now that are due. I mean, they are they're about to graduate within a year. And uh, yeah, it's it's tough. It's working so closely together with topics that we all love so much. It's um, it, yeah, it's it's difficult when they are on their own and they need to also prove themselves uh, as independent and find their own research lines. So I guess that's um, what I'm dealing with right now. So you were a fellow here last academic year, 2019-2020. What did you do while you were here? Because I don't think they have a brain scanner around here. No, there's no brain scan here. What I did here was to work on three aspects of placebo research that I felt were understudied and underexplored. And the first one was placebo effects in surgery. And we don't have surgical clinics here, <laughs> but I had collaborations ongoing in Stockholm. And I had people from my lab who collected data in Stockholm while I was here. So placebo effects in surgery was not only a empirical project, but also theoretical. So that's why it also made sense for me being here. I wasn't needed all the time on the floor collecting data in the clinic. The second aspect of the work I did here was to look into placebo effects in psychotherapy. And that's also something that we don't usually think of when we think of placebo effects. We think of sugar pills most of the time. So that's also something that I worked on while I was here and also had collaborations ongoing in Stockholm until the pandemic struck and we had to wait a little bit with, with that data collection. And also the third topic I was exploring while I was here was placebo effects among patients with intellectual disabilities. That's also something we don't know so much about because most of the time when we explain placebo effects, we relate them to cognitive functions such as predictions and uh, expectations and knowledge about treatments and what that can do to us. But many of the patients that 
receive treatments today, they don't have the intellectual capacity to understand the rationale behind a treatment. But yet there seems to be some placebo effects in clinical trials involving patients with intellectual disabilities. So how does this fit together? It seems to be a conflict somehow. So that's something I uh, was writing about and something that I explored while I was here and still do, because those projects are still running for a couple of years more. So how is it to be in this environment as a natural scientist studying the brain when a lot of people are doing quite different things? To me, it was great because people were curious and they wanted to know more about my field. So I felt it was an advantage for me. I was approached by people who were curious. And one of the people that I initiated a collaboration with is Rasha Kirakosian, a professor in religious history in Freiburg in Germany. She was here and we started talking about the historical roots of placebo treatments. And we started looking into some very old documents from the medieval days and trying to see when was the first time that people started using these types of methods. We still have a wonderful collaboration between history, religious history and medicine that's still ongoing. So that's something I worked on while I was here too. And we are applying for separate funding for that now, trying to get some extra staff into that project. It's something we take for granted now that in medicine, the gold standard is that we compare a drug to a placebo and that gives us the truth about the effect of that drug. But the question is, when did people come up with such an idea? It's a very clever idea. And when was the first time that people started doing that? And when did that become the logic of, of medicine? And before we had medicine in the same way that we have today, where did people conduct studies like this? Because medicine didn't look the same way it does today. And also, when did people realize that you have a placebo effect? Yes, and it has varied a lot throughout history. The way people explain these kind of non-specific factors that affect our health. But let's get back a little bit to research and the placebo effect. I guess everybody has experienced it at some point. But can you treat everything? The answer is no. There are limitations to what the placebo effect can do. So the placebo effect cannot heal broken legs and it cannot shrink cancer tubers, for example. The placebo effect can affect symptoms that are under the control of the brain in one way or the other. Because it's in the brain that we create expectations and uh, process uh, predictions about our health. And in order for symptoms to be affected by this, there needs to be some kind of connection between the brain and that physiological system that um, create the symptom itself. So symptoms such as pain, anxiety, some allergic reactions, nausea, things like that are under strict control of the central nervous system. And that's why we can see placebo effects in those conditions. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. How could the way we think change the way a bone heals, for example? We don't have, at least today, any proof that placebo effect can, can do such things. The evidence lies in the more subjective type of symptoms, such as pain, anxiety, etc. You mentioned placebo surgery. What do you do there? 
Yeah, placebo surgery is sometimes called sham surgery. It means that the person who is treated is getting a sham operation, like a fake operation, where the body can be opened up and stitched back together without performing the maneuver that we think is making the patient feel better. For example, there is surgery that is meant to reduce pain. And if we think about that, the patient can be opened up and instead of doing that little maneuver, for example, scratching on the side of a joint to remove things that could trigger pain, they just open up. They don't do that kind of scratching and they stitch back together and they compare that to the true operation where you really scratch on uneven surfaces around a joint uh, to see if that can uh, reduce pain. And the patient will not know whether they have received the real surgery or the sham surgery. Naturally, the surgeon will know. So otherwise, when we talk about placebo in clinical trials, it's usually double blind so that the patient doesn't know and the doctor doesn't know if the pill is real or not. But in surgery, it can only be single blinded. The surgeon will always know. But the surgeon can fake to everyone else in the operation room so that only the surgeon knows and that everyone else who is taking care of the patient will not know. And these operations are not very common. I guess there are now around 50 or 60 in total in the world that have been published. The reason is obvious that a lot of the operations cannot be controlled with sham. It would be very dangerous and unethical to perform sham surgery in some conditions. But in some conditions, it is possible, especially in you know, pain-reducing surgery or obesity surgery and things like that. And some meta-analysis now have come out where it's evident that there are large placebo effects in surgery trials. And some of the, the common surgical operations that are performed, there is not a greater effect in the active surgery compared to the sham surgery. So because of that, some operations have stopped, basically, because there's not evidence enough to say that they are <laughs> they're effective for a certain condition. But the big difference between surgery and drug trials is that drugs are almost exclusively tested against placebo. It's the gold standard. If you have a drug, you need to prove that it's better than a placebo. Otherwise, you won't say that the drug is any effective. In surgery, however, we usually say that surgery works if it works and not if it works better than sham surgery. That's a very conservative way of assessing surgery. But now we know that there are large placebo effects in surgery and most likely even some type of surgical procedures that are performed today would not be performed if we knew how it would stand comparing sham surgery. Today we are using evidence-based medicine. That's what we do. And if there's no evidence that a treatment is any better than placebo, then, well, there's not enough evidence that it should be practiced. If you look at it from my perspective, it's very interesting how many of the surgical procedures that we have today are not controlled at all. Maybe they are controlled to treatments as usual or they're controlled against another pharmacological treatment. But to me, it would be scientifically most interesting if we compare 
surgery to sham surgery. So then we would really know how much is due to the, the contextual factors of going through surgery and how much is due to the, the actual active procedure itself. And I know surgeons are very well aware of this. Most surgeons are aware of placebo effects in surgery and they, they even harness sometimes the contextual factors and the placebo components of, of their surgery. They're skilled clinicians and they know how to, to perform what we call the art of medicine as opposed to like the science itself. I've performed a study where I, I interviewed surgeons about placebo effects in surgery and I was impressed how much they knew and how aware they were of, of placebo effects in their profession. But I guess it's also a lot about expectations. If I'm hopping onto a surgery table to get a procedure, I mean, my expectation is also to really get better. Patients' expectations are usually quite high in relation to surgery. That's true. And there are many reasons for that. But we think that the expectations are one part of the explanation, but not everything. Because <laughs> it's also a very elaborate procedure to go through surgery. Is so much more than just swallowing a pill morning and evening. There's more at stake and many more people involved, many more social interactions. And also I've been asking surgeons about this, how much the interaction before surgery, during the, the consultation, how much that explains the outcome of the patient ultimately. And I think a lot of the surgeons I talked to said that the consultation between doctor and patient before any type of surgery or other treatment is incredibly important because that's when you establish a rapport, that's when you establish a contract or an alliance that can really affect the outcome. And if that is not done properly, usually that can lead to some worse outcomes in patients, at least according to to the experience of surgeons. So I ask them also, how important is it that the same surgeon that assesses you prior to surgery, how important is it that that surgeon is also the one performing the surgery itself? And they said it's really important. There's this anecdotal evidence among surgeons that if you switch, if you are assessed by one, creating the contract with one surgeon, and then on the day of surgery, it turns out that another person will operate on you. That usually leads to some complications, they think. And often the patient will ask the surgeon, can you assure me that it's going to be you performing the surgery later? I want to know. So there's something about the contract with the surgeon, somebody who's going to take a knife and, and cut your tissues you want to know that that person is really on your side and really knows you and that you can trust that person. And that seems incredibly important to understand uh, variations in outcomes and complications after surgery. Yeah, so it's about trust, really. Yeah, there are many different words for that. What, this little intangible chemistry that happens between two people of it either alliance or the contract or the trust or the confidence. I mean, we, we have different words for it, but I think that we're all talking about the same thing, this, um, this kind of intuitive trust or confidence in the person who's going to operate on you. It's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. 
there is a large variety of treatments and medicine and different things that are labeled as alternative. I'm thinking about homeopathy, acupuncture, which I have received myself and I think it works <laughs> on me anyway. You can buy dietary supplements such as vitamins, superberries. I mean, there is a jungle out there of things that people say help against various things or make you healthier. Is that a placebo effect that we see there, if it works? First of all, I would like to say that don't feel ashamed if you think that it works, because there are many things that work. I'm sure that acupuncture works. The question is, for what reason does it work? Does it work for the reason that the acupuncture therapist is telling you? Or does it work for some other reason related to predictions of relief and expectations of relief, etc. So I'm sure all of us have own experience or seen others where alternative therapies work. And that's um, no doubt about it. But I'm interested in, in the mechanisms behind the beneficial effects of these therapies. And a lot of the time, I think that the placebo effect is the mechanism behind the effects of, of some of these therapies. But it's, I mean, I wouldn't say that alternative therapies equals placebo effects. There's so much more to it. And there can also be interactions between a specific treatment modality, such as putting a needle down into the skin, and expectations that gives you something more than just the placebo effect. So the interactions between the specific way that a treatment is delivered and the placebo effect could be giving you a very good effect and a reducing effect of your symptoms. And then also the side effects that comes with the different ways that alternative therapies are, are given could also interact with expectations and give certain effects. So if something is slightly more invasive... Uh, which means it, it goes into the, it penetrates the skin, that can be a positive factor that interacts with expectations and creates placebo effects. So it's not only the expectations, it's also the, the specific component of how these therapies are manually distributed and uh, used that is important to take into consideration, I think. Now, there are some scientists who just say, this is how placebo effect doesn't exist. What is your response to that? There are placebo effects in most, let's say this, there are placebo responses in most clinical trials, meaning that patients who receive fake medication get better throughout the time of the study. That doesn't mean that expectations create these improvements in patients. There can be other things, such as spontaneous remission, that people get better over time. That's the natural way. It's called natural history. But the placebo effect is that specific improvement that we can relate to expectations about relief. And now there's a lot of studies looking at the neurobiology underlying placebo effects. So when there are placebo effects, we can also see that there are objective changes in the body. So for example, when somebody is experiencing pain relief, in relation to a placebo treatment that is associated with a release of certain neurotransmitters that can inhibit pain. 
So we know so much more about the mechanisms. We can look into the human body and see that it's not only a way for patients to make the doctor happy to say that they feel better when they're on placebo. We also see that there are objective things happening inside the bodies of of the patients. And that's really important to know. There are objective markers of, of the placebo effect in addition to the subjective reports that patients give in our trials. How could you harness treatment with placebo in a clinical setting and still let it be safe and ethical? Yeah, that's the the toughest question for placebo research today. How do we harness these effects? Because we're not allowed to deceive patients. We cannot pretend that we have active treatment when we give them placebo pills, for example. There are different ways that people have uh, suggested. One way is that we learn more about which type of information that can lead to placebo-like effects. So if we have active treatment, we can tailor the information that we give to patients to try to boost the placebo component of that active treatment. And at the same time, we can tailor the information so that we reduce the nocebo component of that active treatment. And nocebo is like a negative placebo. If you expect side effects, you may experience them. So I think information and the way we talk to patients and the way we handle patients in healthcare can be improved based on what placebo research has found. And the second part is the doctor-patient relationship, because in all placebo studies, we, we realize that the placebo effect is so associated with the doctor-patient relationship. It's a very potent way to create expectations, is to have a positive interaction with a patient. So learning more about the doctor-patient relationship, I think, will also have a chance to improve the outcomes of active treatments. So still only using like evidence-based medicine, active treatments, using no placebos, but try to improve the way we interact with patients. Because the delivery of care has sometimes been forgotten because we trust so much in the kind of the biomedical content of our treatments that we forget also the delivery of care. And the third part of harnessing placebo effects that people have tried recently is to use placebo treatments, inert treatments, but telling patients that there are placebos so that there is no deception involved. And that has been tested now in people with depression, with back pain, with ADHD, and some other conditions. And it turns out that even though patients know that they're getting placebo treatment, they still seem to get better than not getting any treatment at all. Also in IBS, I forgot to say, one of the very first studies was performed in patients with IBS. So this is a a little bit of a mystery, how knowing about the getting a placebo pill still make you feel better than not getting treatment at all. I could talk about that for a long time, but that's happening right now. And I think even in Sweden now, there have been a couple of studies where people try out open-label placebos, as we call them. Placebo pills, when you're completely open about their inert content. That sounds very exciting. Yeah, it's very intriguing. And I, I don't know yet what the mechanism is. People are trying to understand that now. In the United States, there's an ongoing study about open-label placebos in patients with low back pain, where they also scan the brain and they measure a lot of objective things. 
pre and post treatment with open placebo. So we'll see what that study finds. Yeah, you mentioned nocebo. Um, right now we we live in a t- pandemic and the vaccinations are being rolled out all over the world. And some people are very scared of side effects from the vaccine. What shall we think about when doing this kind of mass vaccinations now? Now with the pandemic, it has become extremely timely to talk about nocebo effects. People are experiencing side effects from the vaccines, and that's natural. But if we look at the large trials that have been performed, for example, there was a publication a couple of months ago from the Pfizer vaccine where they compared the side effects experienced in patients who received either the real vaccine or patients who received placebo. And in total, there were more than 50,000 people. So it's a large number of people. And if we compare the two profiles of side effects between real vaccine and placebo, you see that they look very similar. One that was different was the pain in the arm around the injection site. I mean, that was much stronger in the real vaccine group. But many of the other side effects were very, very similar between active vaccine and and placebo. And if people know about that, they will also know that their own expectations and their own fears associated with getting the vaccine can be related to nocebo. And if they know about that, I think it's easier perhaps to motivate people to take part in these immunization programs. Otherwise, there can be some unfounded fears around taking the vaccine, and people must know about the role of the nocebo effect, but also to misattribution. During the days and weeks after getting the vaccine, naturally, some people will get a headache and they will get nauseous or get a diarrhea. So it's not only because of the vaccine, it's because it's natural history and things happen. And we should not attribute everything negative that happens to us after a vaccination to the vaccine itself. So being aware of nocebo effects and how common they are and being aware of the power of misattribution, I think will help people maybe to keep their head straight in information about vaccine and the decisions people must take regarding the vaccine. You mentioned also you're very interested in the perception of pain, especially chronic pain, and you have also done some studies there. Can you give us an example of one of your projects? Yeah, right now we have several interesting projects, but I think the one that where we are summarizing the results now when we can see very exciting results is the one where we looked at pain perception and pain regulation among people who have self-injury. So there are a lot of, especially young women, who have what we call a non-suicidal self-injury when they hurt bodily tissues without the intent to take their own life. And usually it's explained as a way to regulate negative emotions. And there were some preliminary results suggesting that women who self-harm that they don't feel pain while they self-harm, even though some of the, the injuries can be quite severe from a, you know, like an organic point of view. So we wanted to look closer into that. So we started collaborating with 
a psychiatry research group, and we were able to do pain testing and brain scanning among 40 women with self-injury behavior. And then we compared that to 40 women the same age, same education, same level of exercise habits who do not have any self-injury behavior. And we found that women with self-injury behavior, they did have an altered pain regulation compared to the controls. It seemed they have higher pain thresholds, but also a more effective like top-down inhibition of pain, meaning that the break that is, if you think about the pain system as like a gas when there's incoming pain signals up into the brain and there's like a break where you can also inhibit those incoming pain signals, they have a more effective break function where they inhibit pain better than healthy controls, which might explain then why they can perform any self-injury at all. Because in fact, not all people could become self-harmers in that sense, because it would hurt too much. So there's something very interesting going on with the pain regulation system in these patients. And I think for me, the surprise was that they have a dysfunctional regulation of emotions in the first place. I mean, there's lack of inhibition of negative affect. And that's why they need to find a coping mechanism for this. But then we found that pain was inhibited more effectively than in healthy controls. It seems to be a very specific mechanism that they are worse in inhibiting negative emotions and regulating them, but they are more efficient in regulating pain. We found something very interesting there that we're going to publish now, and we'll see what happens from there. Ultimately, we hope, of course, that this could help people with self-injury behavior. And maybe, I mean, just maybe it could also help us understand the people who have pain problems. Because this says something about the pain regulatory system in the body and how some people can inhibit pain very well. And some seem to have a just dysfunctional pain break altogether. I was also thinking that if you know more about how to inhibit pain, you could use that for patients with chronic pain. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to try and translate what we found in that self-injury study into a clinical study where we also include patients who suffer from long-term pain to see if the brain regions that we find are different between self-injury and controls, if they could somehow also be different in patients with uh, long-term pain, if they can be on two different sides of a continuum, so to speak, of, um, of pain regulation, where the healthy controls are in the middle and self-injury is on one extreme and long-term pain is on the other end of the extreme. Very interesting to hear more about your research. We can move on to another subject, which is um, outreach. And you're quite engaged in that. Partly this kind of outreach, um, being on podcasts, media, talking to the public or to the general audience. But I know that you're also very involved in talking to patient organizations. Why is this important to you? In the first place, it started with me doing studies in a pain condition called fibromyalgia. And at the time in, let's say, around 2004 or five, there were so many misconceptions around that diagnosis. And 
I felt the urge to correct some misunderstandings about the diagnosis, how the diagnosis was determined in the first place and what was known and what was not known about that condition. So anytime I had the chance, I would go out to patients' organizations and just have conversations with people and basically just present what's going on right now. What are the new studies coming out? What's the cutting edge of this research field? And that, to me, was extremely important to meet the patients, make sure that they had updated information about all the new exciting studies that concerned their own diagnosis but also to go out to, to clinics and talk to those who are directly in touch with these patients to make sure that there are no misconceptions anymore. One thing that bothered me was that people always said, well, there's limited, there was a formulation that they always used. It's a pain condition with unknown origin or so. Since there were so many studies coming out and just so much evidence coming out about changes in these patients, it wasn't fair anymore to talk about unknown mechanisms or unknown origin. I felt I had to contribute to like a higher level of, of information around that diagnosis. So it started there with my frustrations around fibromyalgia. And then I realized with time that the research got better too, once I was in this let's say, feedback loop between the patients and the research. And now with the recent study among people who um, self-harm, we included a patient organization already at the planning stage of the study because we wanted to know whether the experiments that we do, which are in a very limited environment that may not be just the way it looks in the everyday life of the patients, we wanted to know that what we did and measured would make sense to the patients themselves, that it would be ethical, that it would be acceptable to them, and that it would say something about their condition. So from now on, I feel that my research will always be better if I include the patient perspective from the very beginning of, uh, of planning my studies. So you get a lot of things back also from interacting with the patients. Absolutely. And I mean, it started with my frustrations around misconceptions about fibromyalgia, and I wanted to share the research with people. But then I realized that I learned so much. And I also learned about some misconceptions that could be interesting to bring into our scientific articles to start the article by saying, like, this is what people expect. And here we wanted to test whether that was true or not. You want to know what the medical profession, for example, expect from patients with fibromyalgia. And then you, you can tailor your hypothesis and your uh, studies to give answers and information that seems useful to them, to make it relevant for them. So that's something I've yeah, really learned over the years to listen to patients and to the clinical professions and integrate that into the planning of the next iteration of, of our studies and writing the articles also. Because you're really writing for them, for people outside your own lab, and you want to know how they perceive things so that you can make the text relevant and the conclusions relevant to the pressing questions that people have around a certain condition. Because it's not always the same. The questions we feel are the most 
important ones may not always be the same questions that patients feel are the most important for them. Yeah, because you want to understand what's going on in the brain, what's the mechanism. And also, I mean, in the long run, you also want to improve situation for patients. But the two things, I don't know, are they always connected? They are. In in the long run, they are. But I know that both patients and clinicians have been extremely interested in the interaction between pain and negative emotions, for example. So there seems to be an an idea that negative emotions lead to pain and that depression and anxiety um, could be causes of people's complaints uh, of pain. And they want researchers to really unpack the interactions between negative emotions and pain to explain a little bit better how they relate to one another. Are they explaining one another? I mean, do they lead to one another or should they be treated separately and so on? And that's something that for me has come from the the clinical profession and from patients that I had not thought about so much, but that I also investigated more because of popular demand, so to speak. Looking forward then, we have talked a lot about what you have done and you've done currently. So what is happening next, next few years? I am very intrigued by this surgery and placebo topic, and we're still collecting data from a large study where patients are currently being randomized to receive real surgery or sham surgery. And we do all sorts of experiments on, on them. And that study is taking time not only because it's a difficult study to start with, but also because of the pandemic. There are few operation slots at the hospital at the moment. But that study is going to be so exciting to open up, I think. I'm very curious about that one. And also, I am, you know, I'm very passionate about this historical project of trying to go back as far in time as possible and see the, the earliest roots of placebo controls as a logic or like a way to discern true effects from false ones in medicine. I don't have an idea of where it will end. I'm just very curious to learn myself. That sounds very exciting. We have to connect again and then uh, see what has happened. Thank you very much for being on uh, SCAS Talks and joining me here today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the first episode within the theme, The Brain. This time I have talked to Karin Jensen, Pro Futura Ciencia Fellow here at SCAS. In the upcoming episode, within the same topic, I am talking to Don Larhammer, Professor at Uppsala University and responsible for the theme, Human Brains and Societies within the Natural Science Program here at SCAS. During the spring and summer of 2021, SCAS Talks is releasing episodes within the following themes. Global Governance, The Brain, Africa and Life in Outer Space. In previous episodes, we have covered different aspects of the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages and have also dived into the topic of diversity. We are sure there's something of interest for everybody. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. 
You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. My name is Nathalie von der Lea and I would like to thank Karin Jensen once again for joining SCAS Talks. And of course you for listening. Bye for now. Bye for now.